Here's a quiz. Name a bel canto comedy that has had over a hundred performances on the Met stage over the past 100 years and has featured soprano legends Marcella Sembrick, Frida Hempel, Lily Pons, and Joan Sutherland as the leading lady. Find out on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Donizetti's La Fille de Regiment, Daughter of the Regiment, is back on stage this season with the dynamic duo of soprano Pretty Yende as Marie and tenor Javier Camarena as Tonio. This was Donizetti's first opera originally written to a French text, and it has been delighting audiences since its premiere in 1840. I'm Stuart Holt, and on this episode, Sarah Rotker from the Guild's Lectures and Community Engagement team gives a pre-performance lecture that explores the music, history, and enduring charm of this bel canto comedy. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening, and thank you for joining us. Tonight, we'll be exploring a rather rare kind of opera. In this particular piece, though lovers are torn apart by circumstance, they are reunited by the time our story concludes. Identities are changed not for ill, but for good. Fortunes change hands, but go to their rightful claimant. Loyalty is not derided, but rewarded. And, if you can believe it, no one dies. Not a single person. Not even off stage. This evening, we'll explore Donizetti's sparkling comedy, La Fille du Régiment. In its composition, structure, and performance, it is a true exemplar of the bel canto genre. With many twists and turns of circumstance, our characters find their fortunes changing by the minute. They are at once exhilarated, now deflated, then back to buoyant once more as they show a dazzling array of vocal pyrotechnics that so typify the genre all needed to convey the genuine feeling and emotion of each scene. Rereading that sentence. They are at once exhilarated, now deflated, then back to buoyant once more, as they show a dazzling array of vocal pyrotechnics that so typify the genre, all of which are needed to convey the genuine feeling and emotion of each scene. We are in for a delightful evening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Our composer, Gaetano Donizetti, was born on November 29th of 1797 and hails from Bergamo. Though not from a musical family, he received a scholarship to study with Simon Mayer, where his training focused especially on fugue and counterpoint. Mayer helped his student earn a place at the Bologna Academy, where Donizetti composed his first one-act opera, a take on Pygmalion. His premiere piece was never staged during the composer's lifetime, and didn't see its debut until 1960 at a festival in his hometown. After his studies concluded, he began writing a series of comic operas which found much more success with audiences than the more serious pieces. Moving to Naples in 1822, his first truly notable success came with a dramatic opera, 1830's Anna Bolena. Naples, however, did not agree with Donizetti artistically, 
and he frequently chafed against the limitations set by censors. In 1838, he moved to Paris, where he saw more opportunity for artistic freedom, and spent the greater part of the next decade there. By 1846, Donizetti became ill and was eventually institutionalized. Late the following year, he was moved back to Bergamo, where he passed away in April of 1848. The Italian composer spent the last five years of his career in Paris, where he not only continued to work on Italian operas, but adapted new works to the tastes of the French public. La Fille premiered at the Opera Comique, and Donizetti took care to respect his audience's wishes. The tradition of the Opera Comique was to advance the plot through spoken dialogue rather than through recitative. Despite adapting his writing style to suit the Parisian audience, not everyone was thrilled with the composer's work. It wasn't necessarily the quality of the work itself that upset many other French composers, merely the fact that it existed at all. Some, like Hector Berlioz, complained that Donizetti's works were essentially oversaturating the market, leaving little room for French works to be performed. Berlioz wrote in his review of Fee, Monsieur Donizetti seems to treat us like a conquered country. It is a veritable invasion. One can no longer speak of the opera houses of Paris, but only of the opera houses of Monsieur Donizetti. Because of the anti-Italian sentiment in Paris at the time, Fee was not well received at its premiere on February 11, 1840. Many critics, Berlioz among them, claimed that Donizetti merely warmed up music that he had brought with him to Paris from Italy, rather than composing a fresh score. In a letter of response to this criticism, Donizetti wrote, Permit me to affirm that the numbers that make up La Fille du Régiment all were composed expressly for the theater of the Opera Comique, and that not one of them ever has figured in any other score whatever. As often happens, the critics and the public did not see eye to eye on Fee, and though it only saw 10 performances during its initial run, it soon caught on, becoming an audience favorite and having an additional 40 performances at the Opera Comique within one year of its premiere. The score of Fee was revised when it came time for its Italian debut at La Scala on October 3rd of 1840. Rather than maintaining the spoken dialogue of the original production, recitative was inserted back into the score. Whether that change was to be faulted for the opera's lack of success with Italian audiences, we cannot be sure, but Fee played for only six performances in Milan. Two and a half years later, it made its U.S. debut in New Orleans to a bit more success, though critics still felt the score was thin and not up to the standards of Anna Balena or L'Elysée de More. Though the bel canto style had already begun to wane earlier in the 1830s in favor of a heavier and more robust sound, Fee features many hallmark qualities of the style. Some of the most striking features of bel canto are beautiful legato phrases for both singer and orchestra, rapidly contrasting tempi, use of vocal portamento, and my particular favorite, pure vocal fireworks. It is those very fireworks that keep audiences coming back to bel canto pieces time and time again. Ladies and gentlemen, let's take a moment now to extend this metaphor. Everyone, take a moment, close your eyes, and imagine the last time you watched a fireworks display. What do you see? The fireworks that I see are bright and bold and full of rich color. They shimmer and dance as they light up the night sky and demand our attention. 
Sometimes they fire off in rapid succession, dazzling us as they intertwine and create patterns. Other times we are struck by one overwhelming burst of light sustained above, the purest blue we've ever seen glowing steadily somehow for longer than seems possible, until finally, slowly and quietly, it begins to fade, leaving us breathless. We are captive to them. This is what we will experience tonight. Just as with those we see in the sky, vocal fireworks too have variety. In addition to providing singers with the opportunity to show off what they can do in a cadenza or a mad scene, there are some quieter, blissfully gorgeous moments that speak to the genre's literal meaning, beautiful singing. Think of Una Fortiva Lagrima in another Donizetti piece, La Lisière d'Amore. The long, slower lines of the melody challenge the singer to have absolute control over their voice, wavering on neither pitch nor tone, conveying the beauty of the music and the depth of their emotions without making any sacrifice of technique. Many of you know that at this point it would be nearly impossible for me to resist sharing a clip of that aria with you, and I trust you'll enjoy this brief sample performed by Placido Domingo. Oh, 
then, of course, we have the high-flying, mesmerizing, vocal Catherine wheels, those show-stopping cabaletas. Let's move away from Donizetti for a moment and listen to the final scene from another bel canto standout, Bellini's La Sonambula, performed by Joan Sutherland. Catherine Wheel Cavalletta, as I'll call it, is part of a larger scene structure. Earlier opera featured a cantabile cavalletta, an aria lasting around five minutes, starting with a slower, more contemplative movement, followed by a faster cavalletta in which the character takes action on that contemplation. During the bel canto era, these arias were expanded and augmented, now taking closer to 10 or 15 minutes with a longer cantabile the addition of a bridge, often containing recitative, and an expanded cabaletta, which allowed the singer the opportunity to add flourish as the melody returned. This structure in its entirety is called a shena. The Met's current production of Fee premiered in the spring of 2008, starring Natalie Desay, Juan Diego Flores, Felicity Palmer, Alessandro Corbelli, and Marion Seldes in her Metropolitan Opera debut. Lest Miss Seldes' presence in the cast be cause for any confusion, remember that while opera is an art, it is also a business. Seldes performed the role of the Duchess of Krakenthorpe, which was entirely spoken. And, as Donizetti had adapted his newest comedy to the Parisian palette, there was room for, shall we say, an unsung hero in our opera. Nowadays, we might call it stunt casting. I prefer to think of it as a way to reach new audiences. Both when Fee debuted and now, The Duchess has been an opportunity to expand the cast beyond those who can handle the vocal rigors of bel canto, all while goosing the box office with a marquee name and creating a familiar bridge for those not well acquainted with the art form to give opera a try. The role has been performed by theatrical luminaries like B. Arthur, retired opera legends like Montserrat Caballé, and even lifelong opera enthusiasts as was the case when Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg made her operatic debut in the role, opening the Washington National Opera's 2016 production. The production that runs this season was directed by Laurent Pelly, who also designed the costumes. Chantal Thomas created the set, with Joel Adam providing the lighting design. 
Though the original story takes place during the Napoleonic Wars of the early 19th century, just prior to the opera's creation, for this production we've been brought forward in time, now set during the First World War, though we are in the same place. We are in the middle of the Alps in Tyrol. Once one nation unified under Habsburg rule, which was part of the Austrian Empire when Lafie was written, Tyrol was split in two after the Armistice of 1918, with the Northern Territory remaining under Austrian rule and Southern Tyrol ceding to Italy. Here is where our battle begins. The overture starts, and we are already partaking of a bel canto feast, with those contrasting tempi and an energetic interplay between the brass and string sections. With a fanfare from the trumpets and a regimental cadence from the percussion, one can't help but smile along with the already effervescent score. on the villagers of Tyrol cowering behind a makeshift barricade awaiting the advancing army. The ladies pray on bended knee while the men wear pails for helmets and carry pitchforks. This subdued opening prayer is quite the opposite of our rousing overture, but stark musical contrasts are some of the scaffolding on which we build our bel canto. Suddenly, the Marquise of Birkenfield rushes in, alarmed by the marching soldiers. As she joins the ladies in prayer, a villager enters to let everyone know that the French have instead turned and fled the mountains, and they are saved. But war isn't easy for the Marquise, who, in such times, fears for her way of life and her very health. Etiquette has fallen to the wayside. Frenchmen are scoundrels who will make a pass at any woman they see. They have no respect for anyone, and good riddance to the lot of them. Let 
celebrate their regained freedom, though the Marquise hasn't fared quite as well and looks for a quiet place to rest. Her steward, Hortensius, happens upon Sergeant Sulpice, who promptly marches him away, deriding those silly natives. Enter the eponymous Fee, carrying the regiment's laundry in her arms. She's a bit rough around the edges, but with good reason. Thank <laughs> you. 
In this, her entrance aria, another staple of the bel canto comedy, we learn that Marie has been raised by the army after having been abandoned as a baby. She and Sulpice recount how each soldier acted as a father to her, letting her ride on their backs as they marched. They are equally devoted to each other, always in lockstep. Officially, she's the canteen girl in charge of the mess, but Marie tells us that she would gladly march into war if called upon. As much as she does enjoy the reminiscence, she eventually declares, enough singing, I have to do the washing, and is back to her chores. We then move from music to dialogue for our first spoken scene, when Sulpice sits Marie down for a bit of a chat. She's been taking walks by herself lately, picking flowers and chatting with the gentlemen she meets. So, what's the problem, she asks. We didn't raise you for that, he answers. So far as he's concerned, she's consorting with the enemy by befriending any Tyrolians. Plus, he reminds her, you vowed to marry one of us. She confirms this and storms off, promising never to see him again. Since this is a comedy, as soon as the scene changes, who does Marie run into but that same Tyrolean she's just sworn to avoid? Tonio, the gentleman in question, has been captured by the army who are now questioning his presence. Is he a spy? Is he a traitor? What is he doing here? The soldiers train their guns on him, but Marie intervenes on his behalf. He saved her life one day while she was out picking flowers and nearly fell off a cliff. They thank Tonio for saving their daughter, and to celebrate their newfound friendship, Sulpice asks Marie to sing for them. She hesitates as she's just agreed to stop seeing Tonio. As she sings, he becomes increasingly smitten with her, and she rebuffs his flirtation, staying true to her word. The soldiers are then called away for roll call, and Tonio runs away from under their watchful eyes to reunite with Marie in a more private setting. He has something to tell her, and he doesn't want to be interrupted. Je viens juste vous dire que que je vous aime. Je l'ai 
Antonio professes his love, there's a bit of back and forth, with both Marie and Tonio doubting each other's affections playfully. But after all is said and done, the happy couple embraces. Sulpice then enters, sees them, and bursts their blissful bubble. You've promised to marry someone in the regiment, he reminds her. Marie reacts very maturely to this, crying out that rather than marry one of the soldiers, she won't marry at all then running upstage and flinging herself onto a laundry pile in a glorious fit of hysterics. The entire squabble is unsung, giving the performers a chance to stretch their acting muscles a bit more. The Marquise of Birkenfield enters again with her steward, and having met Sergeant Sulpice earlier in our story, Hortensius makes the introduction between Sulpice and the Marquise, who has come with a complaint. Her chateau has been overtaken by soldiers, and she's quite afraid to stay there while it has so many other occupants. Won't he please provide her with an escort home? But during this introduction, something sounds a bit too familiar to Sulpice, and here's where things get a little complicated. You don't protéger jusqu'à mon château de Berkenfield. De quoi? De Berkenfield. Mon château, vous voyez, un château, le même nom que moi. Vous. Ah, pardon, c'est que ce nom-là, il y a des choses qui coupent la respiration. Berkenfield. Mais alors, Robert Quoi, Robert Qui, Robert Robert, un français. Vous l'avez connu. Robert Beaucoup Non, pas moi. Ma sœur. C'était ma sœur, elle est morte. Mais de son mariage avec Robert, un enfant. Et oui, son père mourut et me confia cet enfant il y a de cela 15 ans. Mais le vieux serviteur qui l'accompagnait, surpris sur un champ de bataille, y perdit la vie. Et la seule héritière de ma fortune et de mon nom. Sulpice knows the Birkenfield name and asks the Marquise if she's familiar with a gentleman by the name of Robert. The Marquise falters for a moment before hastily responding that it was her sister, not she, who was familiar with the gentleman in question and bore his child. Both her sister and Robert have since passed, and their child was orphaned when the servant who was to deliver the child to her aunt's care perished in battle. It would be all too simple if everything clicked into place now, and there'd be no opera left. Sulpice reveals that the child in question, Marie, is indeed in his care, and presents a letter from Robert as proof. Marie marches out, 
and seeing her, the Marquise demands that she be brought to her chateau immediately, especially considering the state she's in. Marie refuses to go. How could she desert the men who raised her? The Marquise shows her the letter from her father, which she reads with not just a bit of comic difficulty. She consents to go along, so long as the regiment can join her at the chateau. Sulpice appeases her by saying that he'll wait for the regiment there while she goes along with her aunt. The soldiers now arrive, singing about the joys of military life. Since we last saw Tonio, he has joined the regiment and now marches out to ask the troops for a favor. He would like their permission to marry Marie. He's one of them now. They refuse, telling him that she has to marry a man from the regiment, Antonio points out that that is indeed the very reason why he joined their ranks. He loves her, wants to marry her, and was willing to join the army for the privilege. With emotions running so high, surely their feelings can't be contained by dialogue alone. It's time for a song. And now, friends, I ask you to join me as we set sail on the high seas. Ah, mes amis is one of the most famous and most famously challenging arias in the tenor canon. It's often used in recitals and competitions due to its difficulty. In addition to requiring a rapidly alternating tempo, at once brisk then legato, with a wide range demanded from the tenor, it also calls on the singer to reach to the very height of the range not once, not twice, but nine times. Nine high C's, in chest voice, no less. It's an incredibly impressive feat, and it was after this aria that La Scala broke its 70-year ban on encores in 2007 when the audience demanded an immediate reprise from Juan Diego Flores. This season, Javier Camarena has the honor, and for now, I present you with a trio of tenors who have navigated those tricky waters. We will first hear Lawrence Brownlee, followed by Juan Diego Flores, and finally, Luciano Pavarotti. That was Lawrence Brownlee. Next, we'll hear Juan Diego Flores. Oh. 
Last, we'll hear Luciano Pavarotti. According to the inferred rules of comic opera, after such highs we are surely due for an ebbing of our emotional tide. Sulpice, doomed to ever be the bearer of bad news, runs in to tell Tonio and the regiment that Marie must leave immediately to live with the Marquise. In contrast to the spirited Ah Mes Amis, Marie now sings a lament, distraught to be leaving the life she loves and her many fathers. Tonio now asks to marry Marie, since she is leaving the regiment, but Sulpice again interferes and tells him that now he's an enlisted man and he's not free to leave. Marie cries out, lamenting their still unrequited love, and they reach out for each other as the Marquise and her steward come to bring Marie back to the chateau as the curtain falls on Act One. Ah, si vous nous quittez, je vous suis. Impossible, vraiment. pas engagé.
To rather hilarious effect, in this production the entr'acte is performed as a ballet, as the staff of the chateau tend to their chores. Enter the Duchess of Krakenthorpe, and whether she is not a fan of ballet or not a fan of entr'actes we can't discern, but we can say for certain that patience is not her forte, as she cuts off the orchestra by a series of gestures and hisses, with a final bark of insincere thanks to the maestro. The Marquise enters, and the women discuss the arrangement of the marriage of the Duke of Krakenthorpe to the Marquise's niece, Marie. All seems well with the contract, however the Marquise is concerned that Marie's betrothed won't even be present for the wedding that evening. Excusing his absence, the actress portraying the Duchess determines her nephew's scheduling conflict, whether it be a sporting event or, as in the current run, a singing engagement at the opera. The Duchess departs, and Sulpice returns. The Marquise needs his help in encouraging Marie to put a bit more effort into her manners and affect so that she is an acceptable match for the Duke. Marie lumbers about the stage with as ungainly a gait as you can possibly imagine, and can bend neither her ear nor her voice to the music lesson that the Marquise has set for her. A new work by an Italian composer that is set in French. She prefers to sing the regimental music of her youth, and Sulpice comforts her. Je le veux bien, mais hélas, je n'y comprends rien. Quoi Mais c'est charmant cela. La 
Sulpice is called away from consoling his dear distraught Marie when there's a knock at the door. A decorated soldier is calling for him, and he steps away to tend to his visitor. Marie, miserable at what a difficult time she's having with this new lifestyle, remains in the music room and laments her fate. Marie now hears the cadence of the regiment approaching and her spirits soar, as do her high notes. The soldiers file into the room and Marie gets a bit of her old self back and skips around the stage as they sing to her. Right on cue, Tonio enters and they rejoice at their reunion. And of course, because we've just had a happy reunion, someone must come in to spoil the mood. Since Sulpice has for once been part of the good news, it is now the turn of the Marquise to reign on their parade, and she immediately questions Tonio's presence. Now is his chance to plead his case, and he does so beautifully. 
The Marquise is infuriated and refuses to hear another word, least of all from Marie, and she tries to send Sulpice from the room. Tonio then speaks up and reveals that Marie has been tricked. The Marquise does not have a sister, and so is not her aunt. Marie, a bit shocked and confused by this revelation, runs from the room while the Marquise begins sobbing hysterically. In a comic turn, she then demands that the man she just sent from the room must stay to console her, and Sulpice remains by her side as Tonio and Marie exit. The Marquise tells Sulpice everything, and confesses that while Marie is indeed her daughter, the marriage she's arranged must continue. It's the only way to restore Marie to the title and inheritance she deserves without having to endure any personal loss of face at the truth of having abandoned her daughter. The Duchess of Crackenthorpe's butler now arrives, breaking up the conversation to announce the imminent arrival of the wedding guests. The chorus daughters in, acting out various stages of rheumatism as they enter for the wedding. The Duchess comes in next, wondering where on earth the bride could be, and the Marquise makes any number of excuses. She's so emotional right now. She's still getting dressed. She's very high-strung. I'll have to send someone to fetch her. And the Duchess grumbles at the inconvenience. Sulpice comes in and suggests to the Marquise that perhaps the only way to lure Marie from her rooms is with the full truth, and the Marquise consents. Sulpice goes to Marie and explains that the Marquise is indeed her mother, not her aunt. Marie comes running out, greets her maman, and consents to sign the marriage contract. But what of Tonio? Our story can't possibly end here. Offstage, a loud, battering noise grows louder and louder, and our dear Tonio enters once more, this time riding atop a military tank, which gives the audience one last laugh at the stage picture of the lumbering tank invading a ballroom scene. The regiment is at Tonio's heels, the wedding guest jaws are on the ground, and Marie is on the floor, having swooned. The army has come to save their daughter from a loveless marriage. They explain their presence to the guests, who advance on Marie suspiciously and demand to know if what the soldiers say is true. Marie explains to all the guests that she was orphaned on the battlefield, and the good men of the regiment took her in and raised her as their own. For all they have done for her, she owes them her life. So if she must, she will marry. 
Her story and sacrifice have, at long last, touched the Marquise, who has a change of heart and implores Marie not to marry the Duke of Crackenthorpe, but instead to marry the man of her choosing. And so her match with Tonio is assured. Everyone rejoices, except, of course, the Duchess, and the entire company sings to happiness and to France. This season, Pretty Yende stars as Marie, Javier Camarena will sing us into the rafters as Tonio, Stephanie Blythe is the Marquise of Birkenfield, and Kathleen Turner makes her operatic debut as the Duchess of Crackenthorpe. As you venture to the Met to enjoy La Fille, I promise you this, a joyful celebration of singing, of love, of life, and of opera itself, and a happy ending for all. That was Sarah Rotger, Met Opera Guild Lectures and Community Engagement Senior Associate, talking about La Fille de Régiment. Our season of events is in full swing here at Lincoln Center, and from pre-performance lectures to opera boot camp, there is something for everyone at the Metropolitan Opera Guild. Visit us at metguild.org. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you for listening.